Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us, Vincent Reinhardt, Standish Mellon economist and investment strategist. Good morning to you, Vince. Is that how you see this playing out, a short-term win? Uh, good morning, Jonathan. Uh, it, it, so, look, I think that we have to accept that the government's going to be shut down for a while, uh, that it was pretty clearly a, a, a distinct standoff we saw yesterday, and that the Federal Reserve is on the sidelines for a bit. The minutes will be interesting this afternoon, though. What are you looking for from the minutes this afternoon? Uh, one thing you got to remember is that the minutes are supposed to be an accurate depiction of what was discussed at the FOMC meeting. But a lot of stuff is discussed at the FOMC meeting. The transcript runs something like 120 pages, and they distill it down to 11 or 12 pages. In those minutes, um, therefore, there's some selectivity in the week or two after the meeting to uh, nudge the boat uh, in, a, in a better direction. Uh, Chair Powell came off a little tone deaf in the, in the press conference. They'll try to fix it in the minutes. So you'll see him more responsive to financial conditions. You'll see him more worried about uh, the world and emphasizing the range of uh, views on appropriate monetary policy. Jim Bullard, it's be a bigger tent. In an interview in the Wall Street Journal today, Jim Bullard saying we're bordering on going too far on rates and possibly tipping the economy into recession if rates are lifted. Vince, what do you think of that, the idea that we're one rate hike away from a policy mistake at the Federal Reserve? Uh, so first thing I would say is I believe in market economies. I don't think they're so fragile that if you get a quarter point uh, wrong one way or the other, you are headed to the abyss. Uh, and so I, I, I hope that, uh, you know, uh, the world works better than that. Second, remember that President Bullard has uh, had a view uh, consistently over the over the last five years or so uh, that uh, it's not possible to predict where rates are going. And so your best estimate of where the neutral rate is is where it is right now. And so I, he could have repeated the concern uh, he, he expressed in the in the journal uh, uh, this morning just about any time over the last several years. So I'm not sure that's news. Vince Reinhardt, in the minutes, there's these key words, some, several, several members, several, this John, it's like you and me, some, several. Vince Reinhardt, how is several different with Chairman Powell versus several with Yellen, Bernanke, and back to your time uh, with Chairman Greenspan? I mean, is there an active discussion that Chairman Powell listens to, or is he alone as Greenspan was alone? So I would say, uh, first thing, uh, the minutes drafters, and remember, Tom, I signed the minutes for six or seven years. Uh, try to he used a quill, uh, John. Uh, it was with a quill is, with ink you know, <laughs> dipped in. Uh, can, candlelight and a quill. Um, <laughs> uh, try to be consistent across time. And so I, if, probably everybody still has that uh, uh, dog-eared uh, uh, cheat sheet on parchment paper, I would say, that gives the translation of some and several and a couple and a few. Uh, so I don't think that you, it, that's not a part of the minute. question is, is how uh, consultative is Chair Powell? 
relative to other uh, of his predecessors. My bet is he's is pretty consultative. He comes from a background, uh, you know, from a Bush Bush Treasury, from the private sector, from a think tank, um, in which you get along by by by, by getting along, and he. Uh, often said, hey, I'm not an economist. That means he listens to economists. So I would suspect that um, he does talk a lot. I I think the concern you should have is he talks a lot to people who are just like him, uh, that he uh, had a material influence in hiring the last eight bank presidents. Uh, the, the the board appointments are relatively you know uh, uh, similar to his to his they're basically rebuilding the Bush Treasury, uh, and so there's a question of how much diversity of opinion there is at the you know in, in FOMC dis- discussions. That's always yeah. a risk. Well, Vince, being able to listen to the committee is important. Being able to present what the committee thinks coherently and consistently is something altogether different. And I see a chairman that's really struggling to do that. We seem to have flipped from one view to another and the emphasis every time he speaks seems to change. Do you think the chairman's struggling in the early part of his tenure, Vince? So I think the chairman's uh, issue and he is that he has an ambition to explain monetary policy as, as clearly as possible. His audience is not uh, Bloomberg or the Wall Street Journal. It's the readership of USA Today. And the problem is when you try to simplify the message to a few key points, you're going to leave some stuff out. And global financial markets will very quickly remind you what you left out. And so I don't uh, – so I, I think there is an issue uh, of how much financial market experience there is at the top of the house, uh, across you know uh, mm-hmm. when you think about the leadership of the Fed, and I think there's also a sincere desire to keep it simple, but keeping it simple may mean you kept it too simple. How important is January 30? I mean, it's changed. I know in six eight weeks, etc. But Vince Reinhart, we're what 10 12 days away from January 30, whatever the math is. It's almost more than that, 15 days, whatever. But but whatever. Vince Reinhardt, how important is this January 30th meeting become? So it's important in a couple ways. One is it's how will he handle a press conference uh, with, uh, now that he's, he'll be doing eight of them a year. But I think it's also important in that uh, they have cha- changed their communication strategy. They don't want to be responsible for communicating the entire path of interest rates. Because that, then the headlines are the Fed tightened and intends to tighten more. They want to yeah. be able to say the data drove them to raise rates this meeting. They don't want the responsibility of a long-term commitment. But they also don't want to yeah. surprise markets. So the question is, do they lean into tightening in March, or do they signal that right. they are pausing? That's the big question for January. This has been wonderful. Vincent Reinhardt, thank you so much for the briefing with Standish Mellon, of course, uh, for years, even decades, with the Fed uh, serving as head of research for Chairman Alan Greenspan as well. It was an original and historic moment for the nation. The president spoke last night. Let's listen. The border wall would very quickly pay for itself. 
The cost of illegal drugs exceeds $500 billion a year, vastly more than the $5.7 billion we have requested from Congress. The wall will also be paid for indirectly by the great new trade deal we have made with Mexico. The President of the United States and, of course, Speaker Pelosi and Senate uh, Leader Schumer speaking after the President last night. He is a Democrat from Texas, but that barely describes his visceral understanding of the border. There is no one I know in America more linked to Laredo and the border east and west than Henry Cuellar of the 28th District in uh, Texas. And, of course, the Democrat and conservative Democrat, I might point out, from Texas. Uh, Mr. Cuellar, I am thrilled that you're with us today. What does President Trump get most wrong about what the people on the border want? Well, first of all, he makes it sound like it's a, a, a crisis and a very difficult place to live. If you look at the latest FBI stats, uh, and I've looked at them for years, it's the same thing. When you look at murder rates, crime rate, uh, violent uh, uh, rape, assaults, and all that, the, the border crime rate is lower than the national crime rate. In fact, if you look at Laredo, my hometown, on the border, <clears> that <throat> murder rate uh, is about two, three times lower than Washington, D.C. So when the president leaves tomorrow to the border, the most dangerous thing he's right. going to see is when he leaves Washington to go to the border. Again, you have a visceral understanding with this, with the history of your parents, with the history of a Laredo. And folks, Laredo isn't Marty Robbins' song, just for to get it straight. Laredo <laughs> is a huge depot for trade in America now. It's completely different than the stereotype. We're going to have funding, and this is Axios, Mike Allen just reporting moments ago, OMB is talking to Pentagon about a military funding of this project. How would you respond to having the Pentagon come down and do this infrastructure project for your Laredo? You know, it's wrong. And I sit on both the uh, subcommittees on appropriations for homeland and defense. There are two different things. We're talking about a law enforcement <laughs> issue at the border, not a military issue. And the president needs to understand this. If you want to stop drugs, and the latest DA report will tell you that most drugs that come into the United States will come through ports of entry, uh, cars, uh, right. trucks. Uh, and, and he just doesn't understand that a wall is not going to stop the drugs coming in the way he thinks it is. So he's got to have a better understanding the way the border uh, works. Uh, Henry Quayer, you're, you're on the edge of the Blue Dog Coalition. You are a conservative Democrat. There's a lot of Republicans out there. We saw this in the election who have moved away from the certitude of the president, the belief in the president. How lonely is this president within his Republican Party? How many Republicans are over with the Blue Dog Coalition? You know, it's interesting. That's a very good point. Uh, when you talk to a lot of the Republicans on, on, on a private matter, they'll tell you that they, they understand that the president is not uh, correct on this issue. Uh, but many of times they have to stick with him because of party. But a lot of them understand that the wall is a 14th century solution to a 21st century problem. He thinks that the only way you're going to uh, secure the border is by having a wall. And that's wrong. Ask China at, uh, you know, look at the Berlin Wall, look at uh, the, the Germans and the French during the World War One. You know, it, we just got to look at technology and personnel and other ways of securing the border. Right. So, so that congressman, what you're calling for is more practical border security. Do we have any idea of how much that would cost? What kind of training are you talking about? 
Well, you know, first of all, let's look at Border Patrol. Uh, we're now 2,000 Border Patrol short from the highlights that we used to have. 2,000 Border Patrol. So what does the uh, administration do? They put a $296 million contract to hire Border Patrol, to show them how to hire Border Patrol. In fact, they just hired with $14.8 million. They hired two new Border Patrol. Now, maybe one of them is Captain America. I don't know. But if you're going to spend that much money, you better get something good for, for that money. So we got to hire Border Border Patrol, we got to give them the equipment. Uh, the military has a lot of technology that works very well. A lot of the tech companies out there have the latest technology that works very well. But again, we can't play defense on the one-yard line called the U.S.-Mexico border where we spend over $18 billion. We got to expand that, work with Mexico, with Central America. A couple years ago, if I can say this briefly, we added $14 million to help Mexico secure the border with Guatemala. Did you know with that amount of money, they were able to stop over 220,000 people a year, people that would have come to our border. So we got to be smart on how we secure yeah. the border. Congressman, how, what, what kind of changes would you also make to the American detention system? Well, you know, uh, again, the detention, uh, you know, one of the things I've done is I make sure that there's transparency, make sure that, you know, we if somebody ends up in the detention, that we uh, treat them with dignity and respect. But again, uh, you know, uh, it's important to know that detention is a deterrence. We cannot have catch and release. And I know that some of my Democratic Party don't like detentions. But again, you got to have some detention beds, because if somebody comes in, you got to be able to right. hold them and then send them back. Congressman, I want to uh, stretch from Laredo up to the 16th district in El Paso and Congresswoman Escobar's district uh, as well. That's the span and the reach. That's the emotion that the president talks about. Speak to liberal Democrats about their belief on the wall. What do liberal Democrats get wrong? The cushy Democrats of California, even the president up on Fifth Avenue in New York, what do they get wrong about a liberal approach to our immigration and border activity? Well, you know, again, so, without due respect, I think the extreme right and the extreme left uh, don't understand the way the border works without due respect. Some people want open borders. I don't believe in open borders. I want to have uh, law and order at the border. And we have that. Like I said, uh, our, our areas are very safe. Do we have problems? Of course we do, but it's safer than <laughs> right. many other places. But the bottom line is, uh, you know, you got to have some sort of deterrence. You cannot just open up the border to anybody coming in. And if you're going to have a wall, to, and I say that to, to, to certain people, a wall, if you, I've asked this question to all the Border Patrol chiefs right. since Bush, Obama, and Trump, and I've asked them, how much time does a border wall buy you? Quote, this is from, from all of them, a few minutes or a few seconds. So are we going to spend billions of dollars uh, to, uh, to spend on a wall? Or do I spend $100 and right. buy you a ladder that can jump people over that, uh, uh, that fence? One final question. I know, Dr. Cuellar, that the only reason you got elected is your affiliation with the University of Texas and with Texas A&M <laughs> as well. Folks, that is just in Texas. You don't do that. And yet, uh, Mr. Cuellar did it as well. What does it signal to Texas that Apple Computer is going to drop another X thousand of bodies into Austin, Texas? What does that signal about Texas capitalism. 
You know, let, let me tell you, uh, Texas uh, some years ago was uh, was creating about one third of all of the private jobs in the country. One third. We were just growing. So we got trade is important to our area. Uh, uh, energy is very important. Oil and gas is very important to our area. Uh, but now the tech, if you go to Austin and I used to work there as secretary of state and as a state rep, I've seen Austin now become a hub uh, for technology, for new startups. And so that that means uh, a lot. They just got to work on the transportation because it's got a little congested in Austin. Congressman, thank you so much. Henry Cuellar of the 28th District in Texas, thank you for joining us uh, this thank morning. Thank you so much. Uh, with us is the right person to speak to on the changes of Mr. Trump's Republican Party. And he is John Braybender, working with Mr. Santorum, among others. Uh, Mr. Braybender has been in recovery from the lousy Steelers season that we've just seen, and we're thrilled that he could join us today uh, as well. Uh, John, when I look at the Republican Party, it has to be a party of change. There's a lot of talk about Democrats, the new liberalism of the Democratic Party. With this crisis right now, what do you perceive as the change in Republicans as they greet 2019? Well, look, first of all, we're, we're, we're saying the president and the Republican Party are synonymous, and I'm, I'm not 100% sure that on this particular issue they are. I think everybody agrees with border security, Everybody agrees with the importance of getting something done. The real question comes, do you do it at the expense of closing down the government? And, you know, one thing that I've learned over time is that generally the White House owns problems, whether they created them or not. And so what, what I really believe is that last night turned out to be a non-event because there was no major announcement. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, the only thing I think we learned were two things. One is that President Trump is much more comfortable in front of 20,000 people at an auditorium right. trying to freewheel it. And I think we also learned what Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer will look like if they were ever side by side at a wax museum. And beyond <laughs> that, I don't think the average viewer left there saying, you know, wh wh where do we go? But it's an easier message for the Democrats. The president's saying we need border security. Border security right. means a wall. And I'm not opening okay. the government until we get it. I mean, you know, that's, you've that's always, a hard message. But you've always had a more sophisticated message about GOP politics, and some people think it's a Whig party, 1840, going into oblivion. What does a gentleman from Kentucky need to do to regain a voice for non-Trumpian Republicans? Well, and that's a, that's a really good point, because what I believe this president was elected on was a lot of disenfranchised Americans who had very little loyalty to either party that felt both sides had left them left them alone on the, the, the economic battlefield and that it right. ironically took a billionaire to give them a loud enough megaphone that say, I'm going to go there, fight for you, give you a voice and change things. In fact, I think, you know, more than, you know, everybody cheered the wall when Donald Trump gave these speeches. What I think was missed was what people were really cheering even louder for was he was saying I was going to drain the swamp. And I think that where the party has gotten off here a little bit is, uh, number one, we're poor on messaging. Number two, 
it is more of this shake up Washington and make it for real people again that is going to get the president reelected. And honestly, I'm not sure that they go to bed at night worrying as much about the wall as they do about their next next paycheck and fuming over the fact that Washington politicians and Washington insiders seem to have a lot of benefits and privileges that they don't enjoy. So, John, let's talk about the classic gridlock we have right now. Typically, it's tension elsewhere that breaks the gridlock. Where does the tension come from? Is it the lines of the airport? Is it the employees that don't receive their paychecks? Where does it come from? Well, what it really comes from is who's going to win in the poll data that's going to influence the next election. If one side or the other side feels that somebody else yeah. is all of a sudden gaining a, an advantage, they're going to move on this. I mean, let's be honest. This is a public relations and PR problem. It is, it is not a policy problem. And, and so, you know, you have two sides who are trying to figure out how they can make the other side own this, which appears right. to be a losing issue. John, we're going to run out of time, but we would love to get you back on again with us and, of course, with Kevin Cirilli down at 99.1 FM uh, in Washington. John Brabender, thank you so much. Just way, way too short a time today. We'll have Mr. Brabender on away, uh, uh, on again, of course, with Brabender Cox uh, in uh, Washington. This is a joy. We'd like to see her every 90 days. We don't. Betsy Grayson. I'm just happy we have an adult in the room after <laughs> yes, the morning we've had Betsy, so far. Betsy Grayson of Morgan Stanley. And every everybody on the cell site has their own style. Ms. Grayson's style is to do pristine work on the banks involving a lot of analysis math and numbers in the mathiness of Betsy Grayson of Morgan Stanley with your team. What's the mathy number that sticks out right now for the banks loan loan or what's the math thing that matters right now uh the math thing that matters for the stocks is that they are pricing in recession level valuations even though it's radio you have to keep talking okay so even okay (laughs) even though we've got fundamentals that are flashing positive so that that's a little. So, bit what's of your point. level of strong buy? What's your level of conviction right now in the major banks? Uh, we're overweight the group, and our top picks are State Street, Bank of America, and J.P. Morgan. So, usually going into earnings season, we've had some guidance on trading revenue from the big CEOs yes. of some of these big banks. Yeah, they guided us one way, then guided us in another in the space of a couple of weeks. <laughs> so, I have no idea what to expect this quarter. What are we getting? Oh, that's why you read our stuff. So. Um, why did that happen, right? Because we had a conference. It was the second week of December. Yeah. Message was somewhere, you know, trading revenues are going to be flat to plus, you know, maybe mid-single digits. And then towards the end of the month, you heard from, I think it was B of A, right? The um, Brian Moynihan CEO coming out yeah. and saying, hey, you know, it's going to be a little bit lower. It's going to be sub-zero. You know, it's going to be negative. And does that surprise any of us, really? Because we had such a market pullback, especially with bond spreads widening a lot the last couple of weeks of December, you guys know that, right? I mean, uh, that's... We, we were paying attention. Yeah, of we course. We were paying attention. So if you've, got, if you've got exposure to high yield, if you've got exposure to leverage finance, revenues are probably coming in lower. Uh, capital markets is going to be difficult. What are the positive signs? What are the green lights to say buy bank stocks that come from this earnings season? Okay, so part of what 
you know, we're doing here is we've got a 4Q that's in the rearview mirror and as stock analysts, we want to look forward. Sure. So the rearview mirror is showing that it was a tough quarter. 4Q is a tough quarter because you had so much uh, market dislocation. I mean, when was the last time we had a quarter with S&P down 14%, right? It's been a while. Right? So looking forward, yeah. we've got loan growth flashing positive. Uh, the H8 Fed data, right, comes out weekly. CNI loan growth, 5% up year on year. Good morning, everyone. For Global Wall Street, Betsy Grasick with us with Morgan Stanley. Your colleague in crime, Magdalena Siklosa, does Deutsche Bank, right? Correct. And they got a bonus issue and, and all that. How are the bonuses going to be for American Global Wall Street? Ooh. Are they going to do a Deutsche Bank? Are they going to be okay? Are they going to be light? Are they going to be a lot of bodies moving around? You know, I'm not uh, running comp at these companies, but what I can tell you is in our models, um, we do have comp ratios coming down slightly, okay, year on okay. year. But that's, but that's been happening one, two, three Q, right? So you've had... Uh, comp ratio is coming down, but that's and it's it's really reflecting management discipline here to continue to drive towards target ROEs. You know, in the U.S., uh, the companies that I cover, obviously, you know, B of A, JP City, we've yeah. got we've got yeah. three quarters of you know one, two, three Q, um, eighteen, very strong, four Q weaker, but you know, comp pools we're expecting. Um, are going to trend in line with, we, with, with what we saw the first three quarters of the year. Do they, within comp and, and discipline, do they take apart divisions or sell divisions off or stop doing things in divisions? Or is it going to be uh, labor rationalizations 20 at a time here, 10 at a time here? Which, which expense discipline model are they going to use? Okay, so... Can I like frame this a little bit? You're, what you're basically saying- Frame means say it better than I just <laughs> did in my way. <laughs> That's basically what she's about to do. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, oh, oh, you agree, Colin, right? I'm going to use that line so many times over the next couple of weeks. Can I just frame this a little bit better? Can you frame <laughs> no, no, it a little bit better for just, us? Well, <clears throat> what, you, what you're really asking is, was the market dislocation so tough in December that managements are going to have to do something different from how right. they've been expecting to run their business the first part of the year? And in in the U.S., in my group, you know, I don't I. I believe the answer there is no. I think you're going to have tweaking. You're not going to have, you know, wholesale change. So let's talk about the capital return programs. I'm going to catch up with an analyst from Oppenheimer who says the following. We haven't changed our dollar buyback assumptions, but with the recent price declines, we expect banks to be able to retire around 6% of their shares in 2019, mm. 2020. How significant are these capital return programs going to be, the buyback programs? So from a stock perspective, you want to think about where they're going to be increasing versus stabilizing, right? Yeah. And uh, there's many banks that have been doing 4 or 5% you know, buybacks for um, a couple of years now. We do have a couple of companies where we're expecting buybacks to increase. And that's, you know, um, Wells Fargo, for example, State Street, right? State Street had to had to stop their buyback program for the last two quarters of the year due to the CRD acquisition. So there's a couple of places where we think they're going to see acceleration, but four right. or 5%, that's, that doesn't surprise me. In, in, in Betsy jargon, what does tech spend mean? Your hugely <laughs> optimistic view on JP Morgan, they're going to open 400 branches, 15 to 20 new markets. I just want an ATM up where I live. I mean, you know, from, from name the bank, I don't care. But, but what does the phrase tech spend mean? Okay, um, 
tech spend, it basically means, okay, well, here's what I want to say. You've got spending on tech plant and equipment, computers and software. You've got tech spend on people who are actually writing the code. You've got tech spend on um, folks that are designing what your next 10 years is going to look like, right? right? So you ask the question in a way um, that's a really good way because there's plenty of people who say, look, my tech spend's different from yours because I'm only taking hardware and software and you're taking in all the strategy folks too. The important message about tech spend, in my opinion, is that this is a business that will continue to migrate towards uh, speed, right? Now, we've seen this in, in plenty of markets already that the banks are involved in, you know, equity trading, for example. Yeah. But the need to have a super efficient plant to okay. in, communicate in, with your in clients seconds, globally. In how do the little guys compete with this? How do the regionals uh, compete with JD platform. Diamond? Shared platform. I mean, this is, you know, there are yeah. third parties that you can amortize your costs over by sharing the platform with others. Did I frame that okay, John? You did a decent job, but <laughs> I think it's Bessie that's got to decide whether you framed it okay. <laughs> I, I honestly do. I mean, if we ever want a third anchor, I, I, I would push Betsy to be that person. <laughs> or, I think, or we could I think, eliminate I think, one of us. I think Betsy I and I a, could have a lot of fun with you every morning. <laughs> oh, you think so? Betsy Grayson oh, and Morgan Stanley. Thank you, Betsy. Thank, thank, thank you, you so Betsy. much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.